0: MSW Media.
1: This week, the ACLU alleged in a court filing that the Trump administration separated nearly 1,000 families in violation of a court order. This is the latest in a series of actions that has caused many to question whether the legal system can effectively enforce the law when the executive branch flaunts the Constitution. How can the legal system be used to stop unconstitutional actions like family separation? Let's get On Topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news, my name is Renata Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a CNN legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, the host of the Patty Vasquez Show, who joins us regularly on this podcast. So, Patty, you know, as I've been talking to, um you know, our listeners and, you know, people commenting and people reaching out to me, particularly in the aftermath of Mueller's testimony, it seems like the number one question I get asked is, is there anything that can be done in the legal system to stop um, what appears to be unlawful activity by the Trump administration? I mean, there is just all sorts of activity people are upset about. And obviously separation of families high on that list. But there's many others. And I think people are starting to feel a little bit uh, a little hopeless. Uh, You're
2: right, because we all have this sense of justice. We all when you even when you're watching a movie, you want to know that the bad guys are going to get caught at the end. Right. And in this instance, when we're talking about families at the border, it seems unconscionable that more isn't being done to make sure that they are one safe and with their families. And then you separate them, you put them in cages. We find out that, you know, there there are seven-year-olds taking care of infants. This it, There's just no way to even wrap our minds around what is happening to these families.
1: Yeah, uh, and and certainly inhumane treatment of adults as well. I mean, right, we saw course. fairly recently uh, Vice President Pence and a number of senators like, for example, Lindsey Graham and John Cornyn touring a facility where, I mean, m- you know, men were being held in uh, completely inhumane conditions. I Being mean, it, forced
2: to drink water from toilets? Yeah, that,
1: there was a whole debate about that, right? Did that really happen? And, you know, they were trying to allege that um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was a liar. You know, there was all this back and forth about that. I, I will say that, you know, w- frankly, it's been a long-term project of mine to work on trying to answer this for people. How can people in power be held accountable um, how? What are the limits of our legal system in, in that uh, endeavor? And I think it's uh, – the president of the United States represents a special case because it is very difficult for the judicial system to force the executive branch to do things because the judicial system doesn't have its own army, doesn't have its own police force. I mean there's uh, – the US marshals uh, often will um, – you know, act. Um, you know, in response to requests from the judiciary and carry out their orders and so forth. And you know, certain in certain uh, you know respects, but they don't have the ability to tell the Department of Home. You know, to get the Home, Department of Homeland Security to act. And so, at times, um, in the face of judicial orders that say something different, if the administration doesn't want to act, um, it can be hard for judges to make them do so
2: right and and again you know we think of the the three branches of government it's supposed to be checks and balances but again it doesn't it doesn't feel balanced and uh nothing nothing feels checked
1: indeed and i and really In the background of that, there have been many important legal challenges being brought against the Trump administration. We've seen them in all different venues. We've seen them in state courts and federal courts coming from state, sometimes from state governments, sometimes from, uh, uh, you know, other branches of government. We've seen Congress and and Trump duking it out over tax returns and other things recently. Uh, And we've also seen them from private litigants. And I'd say, you know, you know, perhaps the 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 highest profile for a while were the travel ban uh, suits that were being brought by the states. Uh, we had Neil Katziel on before, who had represented the state of Hawaii, and also by the ACLU and other uh, private litigants.
2: You know, when uh, when people see that the, so many Republicans fall in lockstep, that's the other problem. Is you know, there there seems to be this lack of will when it comes to stopping some of this behavior, some of these policies. As, you know, there's there's no way through. Well, I you know it's lopsided there, right now.
1: I, I had a, I had read this week an article that five thirty eight had about Justin Amash, and it it decided it concluded after looking at all this data that he had a very difficult path to reelection. And I think that helps explain why Republicans are so reluctant to do this. I mean, for Republicans, I think uh, many of them want to kind of put their head down and get through the Trump presidency. Uh, If they stick their heads out and stick their neck out and try to um, go against Trump, uh, what will happen to them is likely what has happened to Justin Amash. You turn into a pariah, you're tossed aside. It really would take a critical mass, I think, of a certain number of Republicans banding together on that front. And even then, it's unclear because the Republican Party is pretty unified. The, the, The base of the party is very unified behind Trump.
2: What do you think when when there's somebody who's willing to stick their neck out? They're willing to risk their political career because that's kind of what we want from people is to make decisions that are right rather than politically expedient.
1: I have to say I have deep admiration for it. You know, for myself, you know, I have always lived my life wanting to make a difference and do something that I th- do things that mattered and make a positive impact. And I will tell you, if I was you know, I would want, I'd rather be in Justin Amash's shoes than in the shoes of any of these Congress people who are just rubber stamping Trump. I mean, if you're going to leave Congress, that's the way to leave. I agree. That's the yeah. way to leave. Yeah. So now let's call legal He is a lawyer at the National Office of the ACLU. He's deputy director of their National Immigrants Rights Project uh, and the director of their Access to the Courts Program. He has been involved in many groundbreaking challenges to Trump administration policies. He argued the first case challenging the travel ban, uh, and he uh, litigates a national class action uh, regarding the separation of families at the border, uh, which resulted in an injunction that forced the Trump administration to put an end to that policy. Although recently, um, he, uh, as a matter of fact, just this week, he made a filing indicating that nearly a1,000 families have still been separated uh, despite the court's order. Welcome to the podcast, Lee. Thanks for joining us.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Well, I, it is especially uh, an honor to have you on because I know you are the, the real deal litigating on a daily basis against the Trump administration. And so a lot of people who talk about what the Trump administration is doing, but um, I am an admirer of your work. Uh, and I think anybody who's a real litigator uh, would be because you, you are uh, just doing an enormous amount on a daily basis.
0: Well, I really appreciate that. It's, it's great to be with you
1: so lee let's t- i want to start with um what happened yesterday uh the- you made a court filing you asked uh the the court to issue an order um stopping the Trump administration because it has separated nearly a thousand families and um is for reasons that that had not been permitted by the court. Can you explain that to us
0: right, so we went back to court in the same case the same family separation case we've been litigating now for a year and a half in San Diego. And and as I think most people know, we went to court last summer when we found out there was a family separation policy, and we got the court to block it. And at that time, we knew about about 2,800 families were separated that were revealed to us, and the court said, no more separation. And so that was great. The court put in a narrow exception at at our urging, which said, well, of course, if a parent is a genuine danger based on objective evidence to the child or is genuinely unfit to care for the child, you can separate under those narrow circumstances in individual cases. And that's just standard child welfare law. You never want to see a child remain with a parent who's genuinely going to be abusive or a danger to the child. The injunction then was put in place. What we now have learned and what we filed yesterday in court is that since the injunction, more than 900 children have been separated, 185 of whom are less than five years old, based on this narrow exception, what was supposed to be a narrow exception. When we got the evidence from the government and they reported on the basis for the separation, we expected to see serious criminal abuses And that's why they decided they needed to take the child away. What we saw, though, was them separating young children because the parent had an old traffic violation in the past or maybe had a forgery violation in the past. In one case, it said nonviolent theft of five dollars and just on and on. And there couldn't possibly be any view that this parent posed a danger to the child so what we're essentially seeing is family separation continuing through the back door so we went to court and we said your honor that narrow exception was supposed to be for cases where there was a genuine danger from the parent that's not what the government is doing we want you to clarify the standard and enforce the injunction and if there's going to be disputes in the future, we may need a child expert or a court monitor to monitor individual disputes. But right now, the government's taking the position that they can separate any parent regardless of the severity of their past criminal conviction. I mean, think about if in America you could lose your child because you had a DUI or a misdemeanor offense in the past. What's happening is outrageous and these little children are going to suffer. The medical community has now made 100 percent clear if the administration didn't know it in the past, they know it now that we're potentially going to do permanent damage to these young children.
1: You know, Lee, it's, it's amazing. I think people don't realize um, the amount of day to day work um, that goes on. You know, there's there's ups and downs uh, with litigation but this is something that isn't necessarily the top of the headlines. People were focused on the presidential debate and so forth. But, you know, this is news of, that, uh, of really uh, what I would regard to be um, a viol- you know, violations of a court order by the executive branch in a way that harms, as you point out, you know, harms these children, potentially creates permanent damage to a number of children. And this is just another day at the office for you, you know, to, to have to deal with.
0: Right. and You know, and so I'm, I'm glad you you mentioned that, because I think that's really the challenge for us these days is we need to go to court on all these policies. But what we also need to do is make sure the word is getting out to the public about what's going on. And last summer, we got the word out about family separation and there was an enormous public outcry. And I think to the extent there was any silver lining, it was that people came out and really voice their opinion and not just liberals and Democrats but conservatives and Republicans saying in this country we just don't take children away I think that's the challenge for us is to let people know what's still going on and break through all the other news I mean that's it's understandable people have so many things coming at them and I think there was also emotional burnout people said I don't want to hear about another one-year-old two-year-old sitting by themselves crying and asking where my mother is but that, that I think, is the challenge for us to get the news out. And and not it's not just that there's so much general, just even in the immigration area, I can't tell you how many big cases that we're working on simultaneously. I mean, today and yesterday, I'm trying to file this motion about family separation. But on the other hand, I'm also litigating the Trump administration's transit ban, which says anybody who walks through another country cannot apply for asylum at our southern border. In any other period, that might be the biggest story of the year because it essentially ends asylum at the southern border, but it's just one of the many things we're working on each day. And so, you know, it does take an enormous toll, but I don't think any of these things are are issues that we can say, well, we're not going to challenge this or we're not going to push back hard because they all would fundamentally alter how we view immigration, the values of our country. Um... And so, so you're right. It's just there's so much going on. But that's really the challenge for I think for advocates like us is to get the news out to the public because, you know, uh, you know, from having litigated yourself and, and dealing with these issues at the end of the day, you know, any real systemic long lasting change in a civil rights area has to come from both in the courts and from public outcry it can't just be the litigators in court it has to be combined with public outcry and i think that's what we saw last summer with family separation you know and that's what we need to generate generate again
1: yeah and i think one thing we'll i'd like to we'll talk a little bit later about is the limits of the legal system because i think that's important for people to understand and you know as a starting point i i think the, if i if i had to tell you that the 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 first question i get on this subject from our listeners and from others that i talk to it's why how is this even legal in the first is there anything is it legal for for the trump administration to separate families they're just confused about the law in the area i was wondering if you could just explain that at a high, at a high level for us
0: yeah so i mean i think that's uh, that's a good question cuz i think people think about it and and a lot of people say well, how can they just take a child away? And then other people ask, you know, understandably, well, what rights do immigrants actually have? And so we thought it was flatly illegal. And when we found out about it, we went to court and the judge said it was illegal. And what he said was the due process clause of the constitution has a component that that requires families to stay together or more precisely that the government can't rip families apart Unless there's an overriding reason to do so, and that standard has been played out over decades in the states and elsewhere and what it basically has come to mean is if a parent presents a genuine danger to their child, the child can be removed from the parent by the government and and that's understandable, of course, because you don't want a child staying with a parent that's abusing them right if, it, if the if we if a guard saw a child being beaten at the border by the parent you'd want the child taken away. So that's what the judge said. He said, look, we have standards in this country. They're developed. We don't take a child from a parent unless the child is, is in danger from that parent. And then the government said, well, shouldn't there be different standards at the border for immigrants? We want to just do what we want to do with immigrants at the border. And the judge said, absolutely not. The due process clause, of the Constitution applies to both citizens and immigrants and at the border and in the interior and the reason he does, he said that is based on long standing Supreme Court law that's where the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution that contains the due process clause uses the word persons not citizens in some places in the Constitution the clause uses the word citizens and the Supreme Court has said well that particular protection is limited to citizens but the Supreme Court has made very clear that the Fifth Amendment uses the term persons because it was supposed to apply to everyone, not just citizens. And our court reaffirmed that and said to the government, you are not to separate children any longer. Unfortunately, they ran with this exception and under the pretext that they're protecting the children have now separated more than 900 people. But it is absolutely illegal and the court has said so.
1: So as a a separate point, Um, uh, and I think a related point, I think a lot of uh, listeners and members of the public are are confused when they hear people like you or me say, "Okay, what the Trump administration has done is illegal." Here, a, a, a federal judge said the same thing. Okay, so it's not just you and I, of course, saying that. But then they, their next question is always, "Well, then why aren't they being punished for it? Why, you know, to the to, I think the the average person listening to this, they're wondering, well, why aren't people going to jail over this? Why, why isn't there being an immediate?" Action that results from that. And I just, I understand to you and I, we understand a little bit of the nuance about how the legal system works, but I want you to help me explain this to the people listening.
0: I think, you know, one part of it is we'll see what Congress tries to do with their oversight and holding people in contempt. I think putting people in jail for this, you know, would require governmental action, as you know, and I I think would be very difficult. Whether there could be civil sanctions, You know, I think we have not, I know a lot of people would like us to focus on that. We have not focused on that because we just feel like we are trying to stop each one of these policies. And when we were asked by the judge, should there be a contempt citation to the government for missing the deadline to reunite families, the sanctions we suggested all had to do with helping the children rather than focusing on specific sanctions against the individuals so for example setting up a fund the government had to create a fund to provide medical care for the children or the government had to create lists of more information so we could better litigate these cases you know I, i think reasonable people can disagree about you know whether people should be going after these these government officials individually i think what we're likely to see are damage actions to impose civil penalties I think the jail thing is probably not likely to happen, as you know. Um, but that's that's where I think it's going to go. in holding individuals accountable is damage actions to hold them civilly liable individually, and they have to pay.
1: Exactly right. I, let me, and I'll just provide some context. Uh, is a you know, former federal prosecutor on the criminal side? Is a lot of listeners. I think, regard every legal violation as potentially a criminal one. Uh, and I can understand why that's the case. And that's often the conception that we have of the legal system. What I will say is, uh, as a starting point, you know, one one important note is that the executive branch, in this case, the Trump administration, is the entity that has the power to um, investigate and, you know, prosecute criminal. Uh, uh, you know, violations of the criminal law. So that's it's a starting point. That's always a an obstacle, I would say, to criminal prosecution of, of members of an administration. Separate and apart from that, because obviously there's also potential state prosecution and so forth. You know, it's complicated when you have people uh, enact uh, essentially carrying forward government policies. I mean, in other words, you can imagine, you know, the defenses that someone would have um, if they were just somebody who was, uh, you know, f- doing what uh, the D- you know, Department of Homeland Security told them to do, and you know, here um, I do, you know, there's there there clearly should be um, an investigation into how these policies came to be, and we I, we've talked about that on the podcast in the past. Uh, but as as I think you're pointing out, Lee, that would come potentially from Congress and its oversight role. Um, you know, w- what I think is important for our listeners to understand is that you and the ACLU are doing all of this with civil lawsuits. And what that means, that's when you file a lawsuit, asking the court to either issue an order that stops, in this case, the government from doing certain things, or asking, as you mentioned for a a moment ago, for money, which is when you say damages, that's basically asking for money to to reimburse exactly. people for the injuries. Mm-hmm. And I would just say that there's a, there's a special, and I think you'd agree with me on this, there's a special challenge for the judiciary to enforce its orders against the executive branch because they don't have, it's not like they have an army uh, to, you know, point guns at the uh, government and or the executive branch and force them to do things. So can you talk about that special problem that comes with enforcing of court orders against the executive branch?
0: Yeah, I think you bring up a, a very important point because what happens is you get injunctions and it may be that the administration or any particular administration is not necessarily purposely violating them in a way that can be stopped in one order, one subsequent order. But what you have is when you have a complicated injunction that affects thousands of thousands of people, it's very, very hard to monitor And so it's taken us a while to gather up all this evidence. And then you need to go back to court and present the evidence that there's wide scale, uh, abuse of the injunction. And so I think that's one of the tricky things. The court obviously doesn't have, as you said, you know, an army of people out there monitoring every single step the executive branch takes, nor can we do so. So it takes, we need all the advocates who have helped us on the ground, who are representing the children and the parents, plus what we can get from the government through the litigation and then you need to go back to court. But each time there's that process of gathering the evidence, it's not as if we can be there every single time a parent and child arrive at the border to monitor that. And so I think that's that's the difficulty. And there's so many things going on that if the administration is going to cut corners in places, it's very hard to know in real time that that's happening. And and there's so many places where we need to do monitoring. There's with the asylum process, there's the separation of children. There's just so many areas now where the administration is acting that it is very difficult to monitor. And that's one of the real challenges was how do we monitor it? How do we marshal the evidence so we can go back to court and show that the injunction is not being complied with?
1: Yeah, I think one of the challenges for the for the court and the judge in this case is you know, you need the 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 judges need the executive branch uh to effectuate their orders and so effectively you know i i remember i remember w- last year when this became a hot button issue and there was you know there would be uh, court hearings where the government was saying it still hadn't done x y and z people were asking me well why isn't the judge just you know doing x or y you know jailing the doj lawyer saying this or whatever that people wanted and the reality of the is that it, the judge was doing uh, what was appropriate to in to try to you know uh, nudge the 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 executive branch towards compliance with the order but it's the reality is it's there the the judge has to work essentially with the executive branch to uh, to, to have compliance. It's, it's very difficult if the judge is trying to, um, you know, uh, trying to work uh, sideways against the executive branch.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, a lot of it depends on the defendants wanting to do what's right and implement it fully and not looking for loopholes. But you're absolutely right. I think this judge did a particularly good job. Of staying on top of things when when he initially realized that the injunction may not be implemented quick enough he held hearings every other day I mean I went out to San Diego after the injunction for a status hearing and I went out thinking I was going to take the red-eye back home and he heard that the government didn't even have a plan to reunify the thousands of kids who he had ordered to be reunified and he said, I want you guys back in court tomorrow, the next day. And so I ended up staying out there for almost a whole month. And I think he did a very good job of overseeing it. But as you point out, there's a limit to what he can do to enforce compliance with the thousands of thousands of people in the agencies who are working on these issues day to day and all the logistics. So it, it is a complicated, complicated process.
2: You know, a lot of people have questions about how, the number of kids that are in cages right now. Because, of course, we know the number. There have been over a, a, approximately a thousand families or kids separated. Do we know right now how many kids are in cages on U.S. soil?
0: We do not know that number. There are, I, I, and in, and so there are sort of two groups of, of kids. There are the kids who came without a parent, without a relative. Those are. What we would call genuinely unaccompanied children and they need to be placed somewhere and the problem going on with them is that in the past they would immediately be sent to a child facility and those children's facilities would vary in quality but they were better than adult facilities now what we're seeing are them not being sent to children's facilities quick enough so they are ending up in in really horrible conditions. And one of the reasons the administration is claiming, well, there's not enough room in the children's facilities. One of the reasons that's happening is because they're not getting the children out to adult sponsors quick enough because of all their policies that are deterring people from coming forward to take the children or that The administration is saying, well, we need to fingerprint every single person in the household. And then there's the separated kids. And those there just shouldn't be more than a handful of kids who are separated. But that is now becoming an enormous number. So there's the 900 just since the injunction. There were the 2,800 to 3,000 last summer for the initial class of kids. And the other thing we're hearing about... Is And we're now getting from the government is that even before the so-called zero tolerance policy, there were thousands of children separated and we're still starting to hear about those. But how many kids are languishing in the worst of the worst conditions? We're still trying to figure that out and get them out.
2: And, you know, this is something that uh, that occurred to me uh, and I, that I worry about as well, is are there children who are being screened that have special needs and is there care being provided for them? Because with that many children, of course, the numbers, you know, it's, it can't be denied.
0: You put your finger on it as, as they're really screening for that. And one of the things we're seeing is that law enforcement are making decisions about separations. They're not child experts. And so we don't actually even know how many children have special needs that are simply being ripped from their parents. You know, we knew about one girl, a six-year-old girl who was blind, but I suspect there are many other kids who have special needs that are not being taken into account. Um, You know, even though the filing we did yesterday, a guard decided that a parent wasn't doing a good job taking care of, his child, because the child's diaper needed to be changed, but the parent had made a specific conscious decision not to change the diaper until the child woke up because the child had been sick and not sleeping. I think it's a decision that most parents would have made to let the child sleep because the child just needed that sleep to get better. The guard decided no, the child should have been woken up and the diaper changed and took the one year old away from the father. So To think that these law enforcement officers, without any training, specific training in these issues, will be able to identify kids with special needs, I think is highly unlikely. And so I suspect that that's an additional problem that we just haven't haven't, not got our hands around yet.
2: And and in regards to the kids who are separated, again, the the question is, uh, is the ACLU data regarding family separation for asylum seekers only, or does it also include all attempted border crossings that are apprehended?
0: It's for all children who are separated whether their family is seeking asylum or not it just so happens that most of them are seeking asylum and that they're they're fleeing serious danger but even if they're not seeking asylum we are still representing them i mean no one should have their child taken away regardless of whether they're an asylum seeker or or not so i think the attention is focused on asylum seekers but you're absolutely right to ask that question it covers all parents and children, not just asylum seekers.
1: You know, a lot of listeners are ha- ha- are having trouble understanding exactly what the conditions are like. Um, you know, many of us saw uh, Vice President Pence and a couple of senators um, uh, recently, uh was a, a Lee, a Lindsey Graham, John Cornyn, and others were in an area that appeared to have, um, may, you know, adult males who are, in, you know, in inhumane in conditions that were, they were all packed together and and journalists described the bad smell. There have also been, uh, you know, a certain Congress, members of Congress like uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez talked about families drinking from toilets and so forth. And I think listeners are trying to understand, you know, a sense of how the conditions are generally. And do you have any better information that you could provide listeners about that?
0: I I would say that in terms of conditions for adults, we have been concerned about that for a while. And I I do want to, you know, say that we have been pushing back against federal immigration for a while before the Trump administration, feeling that the conditions were not adequate even for adults. I think that they are getting worse. But what I where we're really seeing a problem, I think, is with the conditions for children now—that that has gotten significantly worse. That the children are not being sent to children's facilities, which vary in quality, but they're better than the adult facilities. So I think when, when you saw all those images coming out recently, that's where children are not being sent to children's facilities and languishing in these adult detention centers. And those those centers are horrendous. They would be horrendous for adults. They are completely unacceptable. For children and for families Um, and I, I think that's the result of a lot of the administration's policies of not getting the children out of of the facilities the better facilities to sponsors quick enough so that they can turn over and so they're claiming they don't have room for the children in the children's facilities but that's because of their own policies of not turning over the kids and getting them out to loving adult sponsors And so the kids are languishing far longer than they should in the children's facilities. And then other children are getting stuck in adult facilities. The other thing I I just wanted to emphasize, uh, you know, about the child separation issue is that the government came into court at one point and said, look, the facilities where the children's facilities are generally pretty good. And actually even invited the judge to come look at one. And the judge properly said to them, look, I don't need to go visit them. And what we had told the judge is, look, those facilities could be palaces. But when you rip a child away from their parents, that's where the trauma comes from. It doesn't matter how good the facility is. The child is going to be traumatized and suffering because they've been taken from their parents. They're all alone by themselves in a facility one years old, two years old, three years old, sometimes five months, six months old. And so it doesn't matter how good the facilities are. So we have tried to emphasize that separation cannot stand any longer regardless of how good the facilities are. But on top of the separation, what we're seeing is that where the children are being sent often is just horrendous.
1: Yeah, I think that's it's important, and I, and I will just say no one, adult or child, should be kept in inhumane conditions. At least in in my book. Um, and now I, I do want to ask you a little bit, you know, about the policies you talked about. So, first of all, can you explain why it is the Trump administration? What is their stated reason? Why do they claim that they don't want, uh, you know, children? They want to delay or 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 slow down. A children going to the two uh, potential sponsors?
0: Yeah, so what they have said is, look, we think for the child's benefit, we need to fingerprint everyone in the household. And they're pulling back a little in response to pressure from us and other groups. But what they said is, well, we need to know who's in that household. But in the past, it was never necessary to fingerprint everyone in the household. It was only if there was a specific reason. And so what's ha- and but on top of that, I think what people are fearful of based on the experiences we've seen with the Trump administration is that the administration is going to go after the people living in the household and so people don't want to come forward so it takes a long time to get the fingerprinting done but then people don't want to come forward and even claim a child because they're fearful that the administration will come and try and deport them you know in the past every administration knew that you could find an undocumented person who was sponsoring a child But there was the trade-off of saying, look, do we want children to languish in detention centers or do we want them to be with a loving family? And if that family happens to have someone out of status, so be it. That's the trade-off we're going to make to get the child out of detention. Well, the administration's made it clear that they'll go after anybody. So now these families that might have come forward in the past to, to say the child can live with us, They're no longer coming forward. They're too scared. So then the children languish. And that's that's, you know, a product of this administration doing all this enforcement, even of people who don't have criminal violations or just out of status.
1: One other question. So you you mentioned earlier the zero tolerance uh, policy. Uh, which i've discussed uh, before essentially it's the the trump administration deciding that they're going to criminally prosecute uh individuals who come across the border using a misdemeanor statute called you know for punishing illegal entry essentially right. creating federal prosecutions uh for you know for misdemeanor violations that'll ultimately result in the person just getting time served and being deported afterwards uh enormous waste of governmental resources and prosecutorial resources that could be used to combat serious crime um but a separate and apart from that, let's just say that there was no zero tolerance policy would there would this issue how would this issue look like? Separate and apart from the zero tolerance policy, is that really the the sole cause, or is that just the primary cause of this uh, family separation crisis
0: yeah, I think you're right to to pinpoint that because a lot of people focused on the zero tolerance, and that was you know a sort of easy way to talk about it, but it's not really the product of only of the um prosecutions because people who were not prosecuted, who came lawfully at a port of entry and applied for asylum were separated. In fact, our name, plaintiff, Miss L, came from the Congo and applied lawfully at a port of entry for asylum with her six-year-old daughter, but was still taken away, government claiming, well, we didn't know whether she was really the mother or not, rather than doing a DNA test. And so I think the prosecution thing was a little bit of an excuse. But, you know, to be clear, what we told the court, because we wanted to focus on the separations is Look, in this case, we're not going to challenge the right of the government to prosecute for a legal entry. What we are saying, though, is when the, the mother or the father does time served, generally 24 to 48 hours, they need to get their child back. So, for example, the, the other named plaintiff in our case got time served for a legal entry. We don't believe she should be prosecuted for coming across the border to seek asylum, but we didn't challenge it in this case and said, OK, well, you're going to put her in jail and we understand you're going to not put her child in that jail, whether you're going to have to separate for that short time that she's in jail. But then the minute she walks out of jail, she should get her child back. She went nine months after she got out of jail without getting her child back. And if you remember in the beginning what the administration's soundbite was, well, in this country, if you go to jail, you get separated from your child, even, no matter what the crime is, burglary, no matter what. But the difference is, when you walk out of jail, you get your child back. What the administration was doing is putting you in jail for 24 hours, 48 hours, saying, well, we need to take your child away during that time, but then never giving your child back. So we said to the court, what we want is, even if you're, the government's gonna continue to prosecute these individuals, we want the parent and child to be reunited immediately, and that's what the court said
1: What is the excuse uh, that the government offered for not i mean what I use stated reason that's more a way of saying it, but the average person would call it an excuse. What excuse uh, was the government using for holding these ch- keeping these children separated for longer uh, than the period of incarceration
0: that, that's also a very good question and the The most interesting thing is when we had the initial hearing. They went back and forth because we all knew and eventually it came out that the real reason they were doing it is they thought, well, if we take parents' children away, they won't come here anymore. That'll be a deterrent to asylum seekers. It'll be so bad losing your child. The word will get out and people won't come. Well, of course, people still came because they were fearing for their lives and they had simply had no choice. When I asked parents, you know, would you have come anyway if you knew you were going to lose your child for months? They just shrugged and threw up their hands and said, what choice did I have? My child, I mean, we might have been killed in our country. But what the administration said in court was they sort of were afraid to come right out and say, we're going to do this horrible policy to deter others from coming. So at first they said, well, look, maybe it's not the, really the parent. How do we know? And the judge said, well, there's a lot of ways to know, but at the end of the day, you can do a DNA test. Did you do a DNA test on Miss L., the name plaintiff? They said no, and he said, "Well, why don't you do a DNA test?" They did it, and of course, it was the mother. Then they said, "Well, these parents don't really have the right to be with their child because they're just immigrants at the border." The judge shut that down for the reasons you know we talked about earlier—that the due process clause applies to all persons, not just citizens—and then you know they gave a variety of reasons, none of which held up, and it you know it sort of ultimately came out through the court hearing, but through public documents, through congressional hearings, that the real reason was they were simply trying to deter people from coming to this country from Central America. And that has continued these attacks on Central American asylum seekers, asylum bans, taking children away, denying asylum based on gang violence, sort of one policy after another continuously directed at Central Americans, and in particular, Central American asylum seekers.
1: I got to tell you hearing that it just makes me wonder how lawyers can live with themselves uh working on that uh working to carry forward such a policy I, I have to say I there were times that you know I didn't, that I would try to avoid working on certain projects but I I never was faced with the choice of working on something that I thought was that abhorrent and immoral I I it's that's really something I I don't know what to say in response to hearing all those efforts that were taken to keep a, a, a parent separated from a child. its It really blow, blows my mind.
0: Yeah, I would say that, you know, I've been doing this work for more than 25 years, civil rights work at the ACLU, and, you know, focused on the immigration area in particular. The family separation policy is the worst thing that I have seen in all that time. I think the sort of most gratuitous cruelty. You know, every administration, Democratic and Republican, knew that if you took children away, you know, you could you could you could create sort of real horror. But every administration didn't do it for and that's Republican administrations as well, for two reasons. One is it's just, you know, they drew a line and say in the United States we don't do anything we possibly can just to achieve an objective. But what they also knew is that it wouldn't achieve the objective because when people are in that much danger, they're going to come anyway, no matter what you do to them, because they can't stay and risk being killed. And so that's why we never saw it prior to this administration. You know, the administration first tried to get away with saying, well, it was done in prior administrations, but that that quickly went by the wayside. No administration has systematically separated parents and children like this.
1: You know, for a period of time, there was some discussion where uh, the the former secretary of Homeland Security said there was no such policy. There wasn't a policy of family separation. What what did you make of that?
0: You know, I think that goes back to your earlier question about was there a family separation policy or a zero tolerance prosecution policy? I mean, what the government tried to say is, well, we're prosecuting these parents and children, prosecuting these parents. And therefore they have to be separated because the parents in jail but what that never accounted for was the fact that they didn't give the children back when the parent got out of jail and what we're also learning now from from memos that are being leaked is the only reason they even prosecuted the families in the beginning in the in you know at the outset was in order to get at the children that the memos are showing that they prioritize prosecuting parents with children so that they could separate so I think you know notwithstanding the government saying that there clearly was a practice uh, of doing this you know whether they want to call it a policy or you know, a practice i you know at the end of the day I, i'm not sure that the semantics matter what we know is they were systematically trying to take children away and uh, you know i think and i think it ran rung hollow with the American people when they saw just how many thousands of children were being taken away I have not seen outcry like that in all my years at the ACLU and I think last summer that was the closest we've seen to a real civil rights moment where the public just became so outraged on both sides of the aisle that the administration was forced to to pull back. And I think that's what we're going to need going forward. And that's why, you know, I appreciate you having me on to talk about this, because that really is our challenge to make it clear that the family separation policy is still going on and that there's other very cruel policies, because it is a lot for the public to digest. There's so many things going on. But without that public outcry, I fear that we can only do so much in court. You know, as you pointed out, there's a limit to how often you can be back in court. There's a limit to what the judge can continually monitor and continually order. And so without that, without the public pushing back, being in the streets protesting, it's very difficult.
1: Yeah, I have to say a lot of our listeners feel very powerless in the face of evil. Like, I mean, this is really separating children from their parents in order to achieve any kind of policy objective is uh, downright evil. Um, And... Uh, people don't know what to do in response to that. And so I, I one thing that I think a lot of people listening want to know is what specifically can they do to make a difference?
0: Yeah. And, I, you know, I want to be frank about it. I think we've been so busy doing the litigation that we probably haven't, you know, done as good a job, sort of got caught off guard figuring out how to integrate all of the people who want to help and i've been getting over the past two years so many unsolicited letters calls emails which i am so grateful for how can we help and i think we are struggling to figure out how to to use people uh, in the best way but i but i want to say you know a couple of things one is that i think people should not underestimate when they get out to protest when they sign petitions how much impact that actually has because it generates impact in the media The court is aware of, you know, that there's public outcry. The administration actually pulled back on family separation last summer, response to the outcry. So people shouldn't feel that that's not a worthwhile thing to do. I still, you know, I think it's absolutely critical, but where we need to do a better job, I think, is figuring out other concrete tasks that people can do, how we can use doctors and social workers to visit the children to deal with the trauma, how we can use other people to even if they're not lawyers to help with the litigation to also provide some practical help to families who are suffering. So I think that's one of the things that we're working on. But in the meantime, I I do think that people contributing financially if they want to is important, but really letting their voice be heard so that there's not this feeling like no one really cares that people have become desensitized to it.
1: Yeah. I, I will just say that, you know, from my perspective, um, contacting your member of congress and your senators your elected your elected representatives and making sure they understand that you care about this topic and you want something done about this topic i think makes an impact as well you know one Absolutely. thing I, yeah one thing we've seen in you know just for example in the presidential debate and and in other points this issue is getting boiled down to well do we decriminalize at the border or not or you know these very these soundbite issues but really what you have here is something systematic um, that unfortunately is still continuing, and uh, we the amount of energy and action we had last summer when we were all concerned about this issue and protesting, we need to get back and, and talk to our elected representatives about it.
0: Yeah, for sure, I completely agree. I mean, they, and you know, and now the House is holding hearings, and that's important as well. And you know, let your Congress know that you appreciate those hearings and want them to continue pressing the administration. Absolutely.
1: Well, thank you, Lee. I know that you know you are working a lot of hours and losing a lot of sleep on this litigation. So thank you for taking a short amount of time out to spend with us.
2: Thank you for the work you do.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic.